He gives us two facts about the character and the work of Christ. And when you really ponder and let those facts sink and vibrate in your heart, moves you past mere emotionalism, but into a real and sincere worship of the Lord God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, An Introduction to the Gospel of John. Today, we begin a new study in the book of John, and this gospel has been the favorite of many evangelists as they seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason for the importance of this book will become clear as we begin our study. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he gives us an introduction to the book of John. Now this morning, I have three simple objectives here as we introduce the book. First, I want to ask some helpful questions concerning the background material for the Gospel of John. We want to try to ask, uh, how is this book unique? How is John's style and method different from the other Gospel writers? And really, why are there four Gospels? Secondly, I hope that we can get an overview of the Gospel of John. Very often, if you get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the component parts will take on so much more meaning. And that book will become a tool in your hand that you can use, not just in your own life, but to disciple others. But unless you have the big picture, it's very difficult to do that. And then third, I hope to crack the door as we look at the very first 13 verses this morning from John chapter 1. In fact, I want to begin by reading John 1, 1 to 13. Follow along, if you will, in your Bibles. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now there in your note-taking outline, I want us to begin by considering some of the background material on the Gospel of John. And as we think about the background of this epistle or this letter, this biography really, We want to first ask, what was John's style in writing this gospel? Again, very often you hear the gospel of John referred to with a simple cliche as the simple gospel. And people often say that because John writes in a very simple, straightforward kind of style. Seldom do you find words larger than three syllables. In fact, uh, possibly when you were a brand new Christian or maybe when you were even exploring the claims of the Christian faith, someone put in your hands the Gospel of John. In fact, it is the single most preached book in all the Bible, and it is the single most translated book by those who are involved in the process of putting the Bible into the languages of other people. 
And if you've ever had the opportunity to read and study New Testament Greek, you know the very first book that you get to read is the Gospel of John because it's written in such a simple style and his vocabulary is very small. Only 600 different Greek words found in this particular Gospel. But don't let the simplicity of the language lead you to conclude, as many have, that the book is simplistic because it is not. John is really deep and profound. And he puts some of the simplest phrases and sentences together of any writer in the New Testament, but as you stop to ponder them, you realize how profound they are. A verse like John 1.1, which we just read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a very simple statement, and yet a man's eternal destiny will depend on what he believes about that statement. Or take a verse like uh, John 14 and verse 20, just the phrase in that verse, you and me and I and you. Seven words, one conjunction, two prepositions, and four pronouns. You could really ask any child, even in the third grade, to give you the meaning of any one of those single words. Yet when put together, they're really thoughtful and deep. You and me, that speaks of our justification. I and you, that speaks of our sanctification. And then it gets even more profound when you add the phrase in front of it. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so while there's simplicity in this gospel such that the new Christian can wade in its puddles, it is so deep that the most mature Christian can spend a lifetime in it. And we, we will, by the grace of God, spend a year in it. Now, M Martin Luther wrote in his introduction to the gospel, never in my life, have I ever read a book written in simpler words than this? And yet the words are inexpressible. And so as we consider his style, note just not the simple use of the language. I also want you to notice the manner in which he comprises his material. It's different from the other Gospels. It becomes quickly apparent. As you read the other Gospels, it's like a movie. It's like a video on the life of Christ. But John takes kind of a snapshot approach, and he takes certain scenes out of the life of Christ, which he highlights. And it's quite different because as you read his gospel, there's no genealogy, there's no manger scene, there's no boyhood record, there's no temptation, no transfiguration, no Last Supper, no Garden of Gethsemane. There are no scribes, no lepers, no publicans, no demoniacs. There's not even a single parable in this gospel. And the traditional accounts on Christ's birth, baptism, temptation, and the multiplicity of miracles found in the synoptics are not found in this particular gospel. Now, interestingly, he records seven miracles from the life of Christ, five which are not found in any other gospel. And he selects seven for a particular reason. In fact, he uses a very specialized word for miracle. That means a miracle with a message. And he chooses chooses seven particular miracles to convey a very important message. In addition, the other Gospels that major on a number of the events in the life of Christ don't always major on their meaning. And so, for instance, all four Gospels have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, but only John records the discourse that follows on the bread of life that interprets the meaning of that miracle. And John has basically a number of extended conversations and discourses in his work. For instance, we read only in John of the conversation with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, 
the father of the sick son, the, the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, or Peter there on the seashore. Not to mention, we read a number of conversations he had with those who hated him and opposed him. And of course, in the last hours of his life, we read of his upper room discourse, and there the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So his style is very unique and different, which of course causes any thinking person to ask, well, why are there really four gospels to begin with? Well, some Bible scholars try to resolve the problem by creating a harmony of the gospels. I have two books in my library that are representative of a harmony where someone took all the gospel accounts and tried to put them together in chronological order following through it. Um, it's rather interesting, but the fact is there is no harmony. I'm not saying there's contradictions. There are no contradictions anywhere in the Word of God. But God gave us a disharmony. God gave us one biography, but from four different vantage points, and He did so for a reason. And trying to harmonize the Gospels is trying to get a woman with a size 7 foot to fit into a size 4. You just can't do it. Maybe you heard of the lady who went to the store and the shoe clerk, wanting to be sensitive, said, well, what size do you wear? She said, well, I can get on a four, but five is my size, but because six feels so good, I like to wear a seven. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you've ever attempted to harmonize the Gospels, you feel the same kind of pain. They just don't fit. And so God, by purpose, did not give us a harmony because he had a reason in writing each gospel. Each gospel is written to a particular segment of the world in the first century. And really, those four segments are representative of all people for all time who need to hear the message. There on your outline, for instance, the gospel according to Matthew. It was written to the religious man, to the Jew of the day. Now remember, Christ's day was full of people who were religious but who were lost. People who had a religion that was full of dead formalism but not a living vital relationship with God. Matthew himself was a converted tax gatherer. He was tied to Rome and to the Jewish people by collecting taxes and then he got saved. In New Testament terminology we would say he was born again and he understood what John or what James spoke of when he spoke of pure and undefiled religion. That religion is not simply a set of do's and don'ts, but a living, vital, pulsating relationship with the living God. And yet, today, even in many orthodox circles, there are people who have these do's and don'ts, all of these regulations, but not in the context of a relationship with the living God. But true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is about a person. It's about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you either know him personally or you don't. And so to address the religious man in the first century, Matthew writes his gospel. He's writing to Jews, and so more than any other single writer in the New Testament, he quotes the Old Testament. Never stops to explain various Jewish rites and symbols and traditions like Mark or, or Luke will do. He just assumes you understand those because he assumes his audience is primarily Jewish. And he's trying to communicate to a Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, that he is King, the son of David. And so his genealogy doesn't go back to Adam, but to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. You could write over his gospel, 
Behold your king. The first gospel is written to the religious man. The second gospel, the gospel according to Mark, is really written to the strong man. It was written to the Roman in the first century. Now, the Roman grew up in a world that for centuries were ruled by Caesars, men who claimed themselves to be a god and the sovereign rulers of the world. And so in a very brief, blunt, pertinent, pithy style, Mark addresses the masses of his day, trying to demonstrate that Christ is the sovereign savior, the expected deliverer of the world. And so he addresses the strong man, and he shows that Christ is sovereign, but not only sovereign, but he is the servant of Jehovah, that he was willing to lay aside all of his glory to come and to serve man. And I suppose if there's one verse that really expresses the theme of his gospel, it's found in Mark 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he wrote his gospel for the Roman, for busy people who believed in power and action, and he showed that Christ was both sovereign and servant. You could write over his gospel, Behold my servant. Matthew was written to the religious man. Mark was written to the strong man. But Luke, he was written to the intellectual man. The gospel according to Luke, written by a Gentile, Paul tells us, a physician, in fact, his own personal physician, he wrote to the Greeks of the day. And the Greek was really the thinking man of the day who had for centuries embraced the philosophers of the world. They read the brilliant and scintillating writings of such men as Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Sophocles, Euripides, and a host of others. And the Greek tried to always paint the perfect man. And so they would make their gods in the likeness of men. But the Greek never really found the utopist man, and Paul recognized that. And so when they had a, a, a god or, or an unknown god up there in Mars Hill, he said, the unknown god, the perfect utopist god that you're looking for is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Luke presents Christ as the perfect man, as the universal man, the very person the Greeks had been looking for. He pre presents him not just as Israel's Messiah, but as the son of David, the promised king, the servant of Jehovah. And he traces him not back to Abraham, the founder of the Jews, but he traces him back to the very first man, to Adam himself. And so the gospel of Luke presents Christ as a perfect man. Behold, you could write the perfect man across his gospel, which brings us to the gospel in which we find ourselves today, the gospel according to John. And John was written to the skeptical man, to the searching man. In one sense, it's really a universal gospel written for all people. In fact, he tells us at the end of the gospel why he wrote. Listen to these words from John chapter 20. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And at the end of his gospel, in the very last chapter, he tells us that if everything that Jesus did was written down, he said even the world itself could not contain the books which were written. So John selectively draws from the life of the Lord Jesus to irrefutably prove that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. More than any other gospel, 
He presents Christ as deity. Now, he doesn't ignore his humanity. He alone, for instance, tells of his trip to Samaria where he meets a woman at the well to get a drink because he's weary and thirsty. And he uniquely tells us about Lazarus who dies, whom he will raise from the dead, at whose funeral he wept. And so John pulls the rug out on the skeptic, and he shows the skeptic that Christ is Lord. He is the one whom he needs for salvation. But John also writes with the believer in mind. It's not simply written for the unbeliever, but also for the Christian. The Gospel of John is written for those of us who have come to meet the, met the Lord. And so the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 16, tell us about how we can grow as a Christian. And then in chapter 17, that unique high priestly prayer, sometimes it's called the Lord's Prayer, but typically the high priestly prayer, and we see into the heart of the Lord Jesus like we can find nowhere else in all of the New Testament. And so you could write, I suppose, over chapters 13 through 17 for believers only because he's dealing with not those who need to know Christ, but those who have found Christ and how they are to grow in Christ. Chapters 1 through 12 really invites people to come to the Savior. Chapters 13 through 17 teaches us how to live the abundant life once we have found him. Now, Paul said there was a time when we knew Christ according to the flesh, that as we looked at him just through natural eyes like we'd look at any other man. But he said, thus we know him no longer. He recognized that Christ was God in human flesh, and that's what John will tell us all the way through this gospel. You could write over this gospel, behold your God. Now, that's the background material that I think is pertinent if we're going to understand this gospel. Having said that, let's see if we can grasp an overview of the book. Many times a Christian will say, you know, there's a verse and I know where it is, but I just can't quite find it when they're trying to help themselves or help someone else. And very reason, the very reason that is often true is because we don't have a grasp of the big picture. But if you know the big picture of the book, say of Genesis, four people, four events, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, or excuse me, <laughs> creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, four events, four people, then you know how the book fits together. And when you're looking for a particular subject, you know about where it is. If you can get the big picture of a book, the component parts will take on meanings. Ephesians 1 through 3, what we believe, 4 through 6, how we are to behave. And as you come to the gospel according to John, if you can get the big picture, it will become a tool in your hand, not only for you to grow, but also to disciple other people. Now, I've read this book over and over and over and over and over again. And every time I read it, I get more excited about it. But as you read and reread a book, that's how you begin to see how the component parts fit together. Now, I suppose I have to tell you I've read as many um, outlines as I've read commentaries. And there's a lot of outlines out there. And I'm not saying my outline that I've come up with is more inspired than theirs, but this was helpful to me. Maybe it will help you. I think the gospel primarily divides into three major sections. In chapters 1 through 12, we find the signs of the Son of God, the signs of the Son of God. John introduces us to the Lord Jesus as God in human flesh. And to do that, he selects in these chapters seven specific miracles that show that Jesus is Lord. 
In this section, we'll find Christ under careful scrutiny and consideration by the people of Israel. This section of Scripture covers a few years, about three years, from the life of Christ. When you come to chapters 13 through 17, the theme really is the secrets of the Son of God. Again, we find what's commonly called the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. If chapters 1 through 12 teach us how to establish a relationship with Christ, chapters 13 through 17 focus on how to grow in that relationship with Christ. And in this section of Scripture, it's covering basically a few hours out of the life of Christ. When we come to the third section, the theme really is the supremacy of Christ. In chapters 18 to 21, we find a dramatic description of his passion, but also a detailed description of his various resurrection appearances. We find how Christ is victorious over sin, but also how he is victorious over the grave. And of course, this section covers just a few weeks. Or to say it differently, chapters 1 through 12 were written that you might believe whereas chapters 13 through 21 were written so that having believed, you might find life in his name. If there is indeed a key verse, again, I think it would be John 20 and verse 30. Many other signs Jesus did that he performed in the presence of his disciples that were not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might find life in his name. Now that's the background and overview of the book. Let's now crack the door on the introduction to this gospel. John here in the prologue really gives us two sweeping statements that concern the character and work of the Lord Jesus to affirm once and for all that he is indeed divinity funneled into human flesh. Now remember, John knew the Lord from a small boy. Undoubtedly, they played together. He is the one that is going to be described in this gospel as the one whom Christ loved. Christ doesn't have favorites, but he does have his intimates. And for whatever reason, John became very, very close to the Lord Jesus in a very, very special way. He grew up with him. We know historically that he was the first cousin, humanly speaking, of the Lord Jesus. His mother was Salome, or if you prefer, Salome, who was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so we can reasonably assume, I think, that they were boyhood friends. And of course, Nazareth was not all that far from the Sea of Galilee. Not to mention that God called the people of Israel several times a year to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, for a number of special worship festivals that were also great social occasions. And so there were times when families and friends would come together, and they, in fact, they would make the trip together, they'd caravan together, and there would be opportunities for these two to get to know one another. But John, when he writes his gospel, he does not view his boyhood friend as a mere man but God in human flesh. He doesn't take any time dealing with the heretics, not here in the opening chapter, not with the skeptics who deny the deity. He jumps right into it, and he tells us what he knows to be true. And he gives us two irrefutable facts that I want you to write down this morning. I'd like you to go home and just kind of think about them during the week. In fact, let me just put before you something to cons consider. Why don't you? maybe in one quiet time a week, maybe two, 
Go back and review the sermon notes. We're going to be in this gospel for, I think, about a year, Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen and God gives me the health and breath to preach it. But I'd like you to take it home during the week and maybe just take that portion of Scripture that we've covered and try to walk yourself through it. Talk yourself through it verse by verse as if you had someone across the table and you were trying to explain it to them. I really want this book to become a part of your life so that you can think your way all the way through it from chapter 1 to chapter 21. And as you think about these two facts that are presented here in the introduction, and some would say the introduction is the whole first chapter, I think it's primarily the first 18 verses, but here in the first 18 verses, he gives us two facts about the character and the work of Christ, and when you really ponder and let those facts sink and vibrate in your heart, moves you past mere emotionalism, but into a real and sincere worship of the Lord God. First, consider Christ's supernatural character. After becoming one of the Lord's disciples, John is absolutely convinced that this one we call Jesus is God in human flesh. John knows that Jesus is God, and he simply tells us here what he does know. Please note how the chapter opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now understand, for a Jew to write such a thing, to equate the Word, whom he will identify in this chapter as Christ himself, to equate the Word with God, if it were not true, would be the most horrible thing a Jew could ever do. It would be blasphemy. In the beginning, though, he says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the beginning does not refer to a definite start, but really an indefinite state. In fact, in the original, the article, the is not there. It just says in the Greek text, in beginning. But we add it so we can grasp it and make it a little bit more readable. In beginning. He's referring to an indefinite expanse of timeless existence. In the beginning, the one who had no beginning, that's the thought, the one who had no beginning in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, and he will give that creation to the Lord Jesus here in verse 3. His point is, is that there was never time when Christ was not. Now, children, I hope you understand that. We don't celebrate at Christmas the Lord Jesus starting his life. There was a time when you and I didn't exist, and you started, but there was never a time when Christ did not exist. Now, there was a time when he didn't have a human body. That's the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, but there was never a time when he was not. He was the pre-existent creator of the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, it's interesting, this word was, it's an imperfect tense, and the imperfect in the Greek New Testament does not really deal simply with the time of time, that is past, present, and future, but it deals with the kind of time. The imperfect is something that really transcends time because John is taking us out of the realm of time into the realm of the timeless. The one John here calls the Word belongs to the realm where time really doesn't exist. Christ has a dateless past. He is the eternal God. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 001. Don't forget tomorrow that Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures. Thank you.